0: Having reached the end of my poor sinner's life, my hair now white, I grow old as the world does, waiting to be lost in the bottomless pit of silent and deserted divinity, sharing in the light of angelic intelligences. Confined now with my heavy, ailing body in this cell in the dear monastery of Melk, I prepare to leave on this parchment my testimony as to the wondrous and terrible events that I happen to observe in my youth. Now repeating verbatim all I saw and heard, without venturing to seek a design, as if to leave to those who will come after, if the Antichrist does not come first, signs of signs, so that the prayer of deciphering may be exercised on them.
1: This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. (laughs) hey one again
0: Welcome back to Season 3 of The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel.
2: I am Karl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy.
0: And I'm Soren Reargaard. Welcome back, loyal listeners. We're very excited to have you here with us for Season 3 of The Reader's Karamazov, colon, The Name of the Rose. We are going to be, uh, this season, exploring uh, in a bunch of different directions, paths that are emerging out of Umberto Eco's classic 1980 novel, The Name of the Rose, which is a murder mystery set in a medieval monastery, but it's also much more than that. It's about epistemology and sort of semiotics and communication and laughter and all sorts of things. And so we're very excited that you're here with us. Just a quick note on how this season is going to look. We will start with three episodes of On the name of the rose it's a little bit shorter than say middle March so we'll do it in three episodes instead of four we're gonna tackle days one and two today then we'll tackle days three and four and finally days five six and seven to wrap up then we're going to uh, branch off from there as we always do and section one we're calling simply monks Uh, and these are books that are about life in and out of a monastery in different forms in different places in the world We'll go, to, uh, we'll go back to medieval Europe, we'll go to the future, and then we will also go to Japan and um, investigate a different set of monks there. Uh, then part three is called Mysteries. And uh, we'll be exploring some of the, the um, continuations of mysterious elements from this book. Um, we'll be looking at some classics by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, by Walter Mosley, by Dorothy B. Hughes. We will also, in that section, have a bonus film episode for you about two of our books that were then turned into films. We're very excited about that. And then finally, we're ending with a section on mirth, on laughter, which is an important part of the name of the rose. And again, we'll be tackling some kind of different sorts of classics. And we'll finish up a very appropriate selection for our final selection with John Kennedy O'Toole's book, A Confederacy of Dunces. Coincidentally published the same year as The Name of the Rose, but also a book about uh, medieval mindsets and laughter and mm-hmm. um, things like that. So we'll we'll kind of bring it all full circle for you over the next five or six months. We're very excited to have you here with us as we go, and we're going to start here with Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, Days 1 and 2, just to give you a little bit of a a plot summary for Days 1 and 2 and a little bit of kind of quick background on the book. So this is Umberto Eco's debut novel. Umberto Umberto Eco was a professor of semiotics uh, in Italy. He also but then became famous for writing a series of well-received novels of ideas that were also sort of crossover into popular fiction the first of which is this book The Name of the Rose he's also well known for a a book called Foucault's Pendulum which is kind of like The Da Vinci Code if Dan Brown had any ideas or ability to write prose um And then he wrote subsequently some other books as well. He died um, a few years ago now, but uh, well-received as an author, really better received as an author than as a thinker, although he also did some important um, essays and things like that. He's sort of associated with a, you know, I think it's safe to say like a postmodern school of literature. We'll talk about some of those elements, but in a way that's very accessible still. It doesn't feel like you're reading you know, 600 pages of very hard-to-digest prose. It's very accessible at the prose level, even though it's been translated from Italian into English. But there's a lot of different um, interesting tricks he's devising and things like that as he's he's bringing us through his narrative. The Name of the Rose is so set over the course of a week in a monastery. Um, it, it runs on the rhythm of the monastery. We'll talk a little bit more about that going through the days um, that we go through by the hours of prayer. They kind of lead us through the day. Um, and it's narrated by a, a, a young man, or he's old by the time he's narrating this, but he is, a, at the time of the story, a young Benedictine monk, he, but he's been apprenticed to a Franciscan friar, which is a little bit confusing, and we can unpack that. But his master, William of Baskerville, has been sent to this abbey essentially to negotiate a peace treaty between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope, um, who've been having some disagreements. Uh, unfortunately, when they get there... What they find out is that there's been a, a mysterious death in the abbey recently, a young monk who worked in the library of this abbey, which is a very famous and important library. It appears he was, he either committed suicide by jumping out of the library or was pushed out possibly. And so William of Baskerville, whose powers of deduction are quite strong, is asked to investigate this death. Pretty soon the bodies start piling up to some extent and he realizes, along with his apprentice, that. Things are not quite what they seem and something strange and mysterious is going on in the abbey. So days 1 and 2 are the two of them beginning their investigation of the, the the strange things in the abbey. They show up and immediately they realize something's wrong. They begin to talk to different people. They talk to the workers up in the library who are busy either copying out manuscripts or illuminating manuscripts, so filling illustrating them, filling in the gaps sort of. And um As they're doing that, they stumble into a kind of naughty philosophical debate that's been going on among some of the monks about whether laughter is permissible in the the Christian life, and especially in the life of a monk. There are some people who say, yes, of course it is, right? There's, There's good examples throughout Christian history of laughter. It's an important thing. And then some people who say, no, it's frivolous. It distracts us. It drags us out into the world. And so they discover there's this philosophical debate raging at the same time that there is this series of of bad events happening. They dig in a little bit. They realize there's maybe some romantic entanglements between a couple of the monks that's complicating matters. But really what they discover pretty quickly is that the heart of this mystery lies in the library of the abbey. And so the end of day two, they end up sneaking into the library at night. They're not supposed to be there at night. Um, but they need to investigate. So they go in. The library itself is a labyrinth, which again is something we'll talk about. But what ends up happening when they're inside is um, Adzo, the, the novice, walks into a room and he starts hallucinating and um, William of Basketball realizes somebody has rigged this up so there's a substance that releases a hallucinogenic substance that releases and intoxicates the mind and fills it with fear and bad visions and so they kind of escape from the library finally and get out and that's the end of day two where we are so far in the investigation. So that's a quick plot summary for you. Um, It's a really gripping story in a lot of ways even though there's some very heavy ideas going on that we'll start to unpack today. It never feels like that. It reads very much like a mystery that you might pick up and read. It's very engaging, very quick-paced in a lot of ways. I think it might work, might be good just to talk a little bit about why we chose this book, um, why we were all excited to talk about it, and then we'll d- dive into some of the themes that we're getting at in days one and two here. Carl, you were the first person to suggest this to the group, and, and Friedrich and I immediately said, yes, let's do this. This is the perfect <laughs> pick. But I'm wondering why it came to your mind as a good book to do for to, to, to build a season around for us on the Reader's Care, myself.
2: Well, it fits some of those main criteria that we like, where, you know, it's it's a book that people might be a little bit intimidated, if you're a common reader, to just pick up and go for. I mean, there are really page-turner elements to it, but there are also some difficult ones. We get some difficult, dense theology. We get some untranslated Latin in different parts of the text. And there are a few, you know, trails to go down that are pretty interesting and deep with respect to theology and philosophy and history. So... It tapped into all those aspects of things, too. But I think Echo is just somebody we're all kind of somewhat attracted to as a thinker. He seems very all over the place in the best kind of way. One of those postmodern thinkers who's unafraid to go deep, but also shallow and have fun, right, in certain moments in his books. And when we were all talking about that, it just seemed like, oh, this is, this is a great one. And I still think, having read this book a few times, there's a lot I don't entirely know what to make of out of it. So I was curious to see, like, what our listeners or certainly what both of you will think about certain characters and, and the endings. Um, specifically, like, the one of the ways to start the book as well is this other preface that we get about um, Soviet troops invading Czech Republic, I think, right? In the 60s, right? So there's a there's, like, a... 80s sense of a waning soviet empire and uh, soviet invasions looming that seems somewhat topical shall we say to the present as well and also there's like this deeper thought about like marxism is somewhere in here too which is very kind of strange thought you know um for this book but a thing just reading it again that i was reminded of um, and made it seem all the more relevant I can jump in with yeah why
1: I also uh, seized on the echo as soon as Carl brought it up and for some of the reasons that Carl's talking about at the end of that the opening preface entitled naturally a manuscript I guess well I guess that's the whole thing is naturally a manuscript which we'll probably talk about. Echo himself I presume the editor of this great volume by the ads by Adso of Milk says that he's comforted and consoled in finding it immeasurably remote in time gloriously lacking in any relevance for our day, atemporally alien to our hopes and our certainties. And I love that playfulness of echo uh, in saying that this is something with no bearing on our, on our lives because you and you and I and, um, and Soren all leapt at the opportunity to read this because it does feel like it bears heavily on the way we think. Um, There's a part where, William of Baskerville says something about how we, you know, these, are monks, these are monks who live among books, and therefore we need to know what they think about their books in order to understand everything happening here. And the three of us, we live among our books. Uh, looking at our <laughs> backgrounds on our Zoom call right now, they're, they're <laughs> present. And, and Echo speaks to us in that way. I also think personally that Echo is just a, he's like an old school, exciting, um, Renaissance man type thinker. Uh, who's all over the place, as Carl said, and kind of following in the in the polymathic footsteps of George Eliot from last season. Capable of thinking across a lot of disciplines, his his book, "The Search for the Universal Language," is really fascinating and gets into some of the stuff that he gets into in this book. Um, he writes on Italian fascism and the ways to detect fascism in the future, which I think com- has come up in this podcast. Uh, he writes about that really lucidly, and uh, he's just a thinker who. Um, Appeals to the three of us in, in all in many of his facets. I'll say,
0: yeah. F- just for my own part, I so I discovered Echo. It must have been at the very end of my my high school career, and I sort of devoured him as somebody who was doing something that I hadn't really encountered before, and that sense of playfulness mixed with ideas. The, the first book of his I read is also a medieval set book. It's called Baudolino, and it's about this quest for the kingdom of prester john who's this magical medieval king and they're going through and discovering all these weird like chimerical creatures but then there's also this really deep concern with the politics of the middle ages and like church and state and the interactions which are concerns here in this book as well and it just amazed me that he was somebody so capable of treating serious subjects and treating them seriously but also with a light touch to combine those things together and and carl i'm glad you brought us to the that end here of the prologue which is echo writing supposedly about how he found this manuscript he smuggled it out and then it disappeared (laughs) and then it came back again and all of this fun that he's having with the idea of a received manuscript and then he he makes the claim like great this is wonderful because it's it frees us from these political concerns it's just about books it's not about real life (laughs) And then he immediately gives us, a, he finishes off with a quotation from Thomas Kempis, whose most famous book is called The Imitation of Christ. And it's about how, right, it's a book that to us is an example of how books are much more than just books. Mm. They, they are absolutely intertwined with how we live our lives. And, and Friedrich, that part you brought us to, that William of Baskerville talks about, is absolutely right. Like, books in one way are just books, and then in some other ways... They're incredibly important to the way that we live our lives, at least if we let them be, right? If we are people who are concerned with books, as the three of us certainly are. and Maybe we're mm-hmm. a vanishing breed. But there's a certain there's a certain magic to the way he makes that happen, um, which is really intoxicating. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm really glad to be reading this with you all. This is the first time I've read it since I read it in high school. So it's it's fresh for me. It's, it's feeling new. It's taking me back a little bit, too, at the same time um let's dive into to the book and what's going on i mean there's so much we can talk about here we'll be talking about the context of this surely throughout our three episodes it's a very dense book in terms of its historical setting and it feels that's maybe the most disorienting aspect of the book for new readers is that he just takes for granted that you know all of this stuff about the middle ages and so it does get a little bit complicated we're not going to be able to unpack all of that for you over the course of these three episodes but we can touch on certain pressure points as we go I want to start in a different place, though, which is to think a little bit about some of the metafictional elements at play here. We, we talked about the, the preface a little bit. We can talk a little bit more about that. I'm really interested, though, right there in the title, the name of the rose and the critical role that names are playing in this text, even so far. So I'm just going to lay a couple of them out and you all can do what you will with them. The two that have really stuck out to me so far is obviously William of Baskerville, who's this English (laughs) Franciscan, um, really, you know, in some ways not even a very subtle wink on Echo's part, but it's pretty funny, right? I take it to be a a, a sort of portmanteau of two other names, right? One being William of Ockham, who's an important um, sort of nominalist philosopher, theologian of the late Middle Ages. And then the other one uh, being, of course, the Hound of the Baskervilles from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Right, a classic of detection and really the supernatural and the way it interacts with the natural. And so that's one name we need to think about a little bit and and what William of Baskerville is like and how his name might give us at least some insight into his character. The other one, of course, that really stuck out to me, and I did not notice this the first time around. I'm sure I noticed Baskerville the first time I was reading this. I had read some Conan Doyle, but I had not— Uh, At that point in my life, read any Jorge Luis Borges, who we talked about last season with two of his short stories, The Library of Babel um, being one of them, importantly. Uh, but there's a character, an old, blind, crazy-seeming monk in here called Jorge of Burgos, which is pretty clearly a reference to Jorge Luis Borges, especially taken in conjunction with the fact that the library is, in fact, a labyrinth, which, of course, is an obsession of Borges's as well, these ideas of labyrinths and even the Library of Babel being a sort of repeating pattern of um, that's difficult to wind your way through. So I think those are two important critical reference points. I noticed at least one more. I'll just mention this briefly. I think it's probably less important. I actually don't even know if it's true, but I suspect it is. One of the monks is named Beringer. And uh, to me, that brings to mind the under sheriff of Shropshire, Hugh Beringer, from the wonderful— um, Medieval mystery series, the Brother Cadphile Mysteries by L.S. Peters, which would have been in full swing by the time Echo was writing. I'm sure he would have known what they were at the very least. Um, But so there's all these elements of sort of playfulness here in terms of the naming that's going on. I'm wondering what you all think about his his naming techniques and if he's trying to tell us anything in an offhand way about these characters and, and why they're named the way they are and what he's trying to convey to us through that.
2: Yeah, I think there's another sort of key locus in the background that I think as an Italian writer, Echo is wise not to go into this other writer's territory very far, because he is the, some might say, I might even argue greatest writer in Italian history, maybe in all of history, Dante, right? And uh, this is like Dante's time almost, right? And he's alluded to just a little bit in the beginning as some poet or other who's kind of a big deal, but just died and we'll see if his poetry is any good, right? But this is like, you know, what Shakespeare is to the English is what Dante is to the Italian, right? So careful to tread lightly there and do only a sort of in to... Dante. And I think the name of the Rose gives us a sense of the Rose, the celestial Rose at the end of the Paradiso where all of the names of all of the saved in the highest of heavens are kind of there enfolded. I'm um, my theology is a little off there. Right. But this sort of wonderful image of like an amazing high moment in a high heaven for Dante's paradise. So there's some aspect of that and connecting a journey into a labyrinth to an ascent into paradise. We're on that kind of a journey with Echo, right? And we're also questioning that kind of journey. What does it mean to want so much knowledge? In a book about books, he's also um, willing to take a jab at himself, right? Take a risk at these people who just sit around all day trying to get as much knowledge as they can. Are they good for anything? There's kind of that jab in there, too. But that's how I think of The Name of the Rose, anyway.
1: The Name of the Rose, too, is... That's, he's William, William Shakespeare, right, also. He's not going into the Dante territory, despite that being his countryman, because that's scary territory to approach, I agree. He does have a Cicerone and a young man, you know, there's a little bit of that going on, but it's not quite the same. Um, but he is going into the, yeah, the English, the great poet of the English, and uh, touching on, you know, what note Rose by any other name, smell is sweet, and asking that question, what are these names signifying? I do love that he he gets into this. I know it, we were talking about maybe we'll hold off on turning to that preface, but that he gets into this in the most Borgesian way imaginable. Like, not only is the library a labyrinth and a highly designed by echo labyrinth with the correct numbers of walls uh, mentioned in each room in order to lay it out geometrically and geographically, how it would look, how you'd navigate through it, why you would get lost, why you could, you know, it it starts to bear on um, the way they get through it in important ways. Uh, But it also begins with this lost manuscript that isn't just lost, rediscovered, written in Latin based on something written, uh, written written in a vernacular based on something written in Latin. It's also, Perhaps fake, perhaps not real, perhaps it was apocryphal and he he was reading something and he forgot it. He talks about how he never found reference to it again after he lost it until he was reading a book and called On the Use of Mirrors in the Game of Chess, which is the most Borges title for a book inside of a book I've ever read outside of Borges. Maybe even including Borges. And just to finally, because I'm thinking about the layers that he's doing here in Echo's life. um, He did an interview to touch on the Da Vinci comment that you made, Soren. I think he said in, in an interview that he invented Dan Brown. Umberto Echo said, he's a character in Foucault's Pendulum. I invented him. He's sort of saying like, he's just one of my many, you know, of course. And that's so true. He would invent that type of guy who writes these pop versions of Umberto Echo books.
0: We're already spinning wheels within wheels mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> no, it's great, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, those are those are all uh, really good thoughts. I mean, there's so much. Part one of the wonderful things about reading an author like Echo is there's so much like sparkling reference yeah. going on that it's it can be hard to know what what is just a reference, right? A, a rose is a rose is a rose, right? Um, like. <laughs> Or sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, I suppose. But like, <laughs> what what are the things that are supposed to be like little footholds that we hang on to and what is just there for the fun of it, right? How do we spin those things out and make it, uh, you know, a sense of variety going on a- along the surface? And that kind of takes me back, you know, um, <laughs> thank you for bringing up that wonderful book title for us, Friedrich, because mirrors and optics is like an incredibly important part of this book, right? So one of the things that sets William of Baskerville apart is that he has a pair of glasses and nobody knows what they are. They're like, what in the world are you doing with these things? This is how I can read, right? Uh, and these glasses get stolen at a critical part at the, near the end of day two, right? And so it, it becomes an incredibly crucial part of the story itself in, in that the different things you can do with optics, so you can enhance your sight with them, like William of Baskerville does, but you can also distort sight. So there are mirrors inside of the library that project these very scary images. And this is part of, I think, what, what what Echo is doing with books themselves, right? Using books as a sort of way of either enhancing our sight or distorting it somehow, misdirecting us through his use of references to other works. So I'm very interested in the way that he's doing that. Can we come back for just a minute, though? Because I, I do want to press on this one thing. And I'm going to ask this to you, Friedrich, primarily because you are our Victorianist, Edwardianist here. What do you make of this connection, this pretty clear connection to to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle with the idea of William of Baskerville? In what ways is William... And because this is an interesting question running through the book, in what sense is this a medieval book? He, he goes to great lengths to capture the feel of the medieval life, I think. But then it's also... Sort of winkingly, also a modern book, right? And so, I'm wondering to what extent you feel like William of Baskerville feels like a medieval character, and to what extent he feels like a sort of character, almost like um, the character of Merlin in The Once and Future King, who's traveling backward through time, right? Mm-hmm. So by the time he arrives in Arthur's court, he is he's already seen World War II happening, right, and all these things. To to what extent is William of Baskerville sort of this modern character, this this Sherlockian character?
1: And again, you're touching on something that's so fun in the book is that there's a sense of play with these characters and, and that's important to the characters themselves who talk about sense a sense of play and picking out um, distinctions between things for sort of a fun, intelligent conversation, a way of not just passing the time but of getting to clear thought about things through fun. For me, I think what's wonderful about the Sherlock character Displaced to the 13th or 14th centuries, that it, not being a person who studies the Middle Ages, it, it seems to me that Echo is really invested in showing that, in fact, there's a diversity of thought in the middle of in the Middle Ages that's possible to produce a person like a Sherlock Holmes, because he's interested in an in empirical method and in deducing things based on evidence in front of him without. Drawing on Roger Bacon, who's mentioned a lot, drawing on William of Ockham, without multiplying causes or multiplying intentions, and just saying, What's in front of me? And can I deduce things from that? Echo's really talented at showing how we can't talk about a medieval mind, we can't talk about a Renaissance mind because of the diversity of thought possible at the period. So the character of William of Baskerville fits in really well for me into that time frame because of the way he's written, even as he's a knowing wink to the to the 19th century, a knowing wink to our reading into the 20th century, just as Bor- the Borges namesake is as well. But thinking of how Echo is able to show William of Baskerville as sort of naturally emerging from his contexts and showing the diversity of thought possible to these people who are, you know, cloistered, enclosed, not worldly. William of Baskerville is, but not all the monks are. It shows how talented Echo is at bringing alive a period that we often think of as maybe stale or at least more monochrome than it actually is. There's a lot of strife going on in the book between Franciscans, Benedictines, supposed heretics, the Pope in Avignon, the Emperor, the Pope in Rome, the the two Popes that happened before this book begins, I think. What's the nature of all of that religious difference is at stake, but also maybe kind of obscure for us going back to this book. And I think he does a great job of bringing it alive through someone like William of Baskerville, who's able to sort of talk about, from a heretic's point of view, one of the, the other monks says to him, what certain sects believed and why.
2: I like what Friedrich's talking about here. When We dropped the big P word before postmodern for this book and a slightly maybe more specific genre for this book um, would be historiographic metafiction in a sense. We have a few like real historical um, heresies happening and people kind of working around them and the, the joy in that kind of Postmodern genre is that we kind of know how the ending will turn out, but nevertheless, we're going to get there in a slightly new way. And the winking claim in the beginning that this has nothing to do with the present is meant to really ironize that sense that, you know, history is so clearly a progress along one line or teleological, right? Um, and those in the past were the fools and us in the present are the the obvious winners and Mm. people who are just born smarter than everybody in the past, right? We're clearly looking at people who have really deep and complicated understandings of politics and theology and a sense all of them have of how all of those things will change how the world works and defining these minutiae of theology in terms of what is heresy or what isn't with respect to very small distinctions along eisegetical lines or, or um, exegetical readings, right, have these kind of, like, world historical consequences, potentially, right? Many of the characters are worried that these murders are signs of the Antichrist, right, or a kind of second coming in some way. And we, reading the book, can say, oh, in the 60s, to the, to the leftist or something, this is a kind of revolution or something that might have tried to happen in the 1960s, right or it could be um, looking forward to Luther and the schism and other things as well right um, but there are a lot of things we could look to and say, oh, these people are not necessarily far off in some of the the ways to read these like big changes in history that are bound to come from how you do interpret these small things so it all becomes weirdly, more riveting and more interesting, even though we know how it pays out, because we don't know what it points us to. That's kind of one of the, he's one of the best practitioners of this kind of postmodern book. So it's another reason to appreciate it.
1: An example of one of those heresies, or it's not a heresy, but a, the debates going on at the time that Carl's reminding me of, and which I wasn't mentioning specifically, was the debate about the poverty of Christ that comes up again and again. And we might think, yes, okay, well, this is a debate about how monks are supposed to live and what bearing does it really have on us in the world and who really cares in 2022 about this debate. But Echo, through William of Baskerville and his reasoning mind, is able to really clarify why it's important then and then obviously um, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, why we would care about it implicitly. And he connects it to the idea that there was an exchange of goods in order to live life that always goes on. But in Italy, there there's become a system whereby people are only interested in accumulating money for its own sake, nothing Mm -hmm. to do with living your life, the birth of modern capitalism, he might say. And the only people who can offer true resistance to that are those who say we need poverty as a virtue, the virtue, right? Mm -hmm. And exchange is then in that world, no longer valuable, really. It's no longer promoting the money making going on in Italy, at least in the way that they would like us to. And then we can look forward to the 1960s, 1970s when Echo is formulating this and writing about it and see why it's relevant. But it also brings alive that, that issue that seems maybe restricted to two orders of monks and why it matters then and implicitly why it matters now. He's, he's great at that.
0: Yeah. I think it struck me as you were talking, Carl, especially that One of the reasons maybe that William of Baskerville is the most modern character is not just because, of course, he's like sort of winkingly referencing Conan Doyle, but that he is a figure who makes less of difference than the other characters, right? Right. He is, in fact, a sort of flattening character. And it's not that he's not smart and he's very subtle in his thought and he's able to figure things out. But it's a different sort of figuring out than the other characters are doing because the other characters are very concerned with basically taxonomizing and classifying the world into ever smaller categories. And this is, you know, Echo's sort of showing us. This is what's happening with this constant churn in this period of time with all of these different sects that are arising. They'll like kind of rise up as a reaction. And, and as Friedrich, you're sort of pointing out a reaction and maybe understandable reaction to this new sort of society of accumulation that's happening in Italy and then they'll rise up very nobly, and then they'll sort of go wrong, and then there'll be another group that rises up that kind of splits off from them. It's almost, it isn't sort of anticipatory, Carl, you're right, of maybe then the Protestant Reformation that's coming in a few hundred years from the time of this book. But part of what what um, William of Baskerville is trying to say is, like, these things don't really matter that much. Like, We can't really tell what's different, one thing that's different from another thing, these different thoughts, like which are heresies, which are not. He seems to take a very, we would maybe call it a generous response to these things, which is like kind of like, oh, live and let live. But it's also a very modern take, right? Because as you're pointing out, Carl, like these things matter to these characters. These differences matter. And in some ways, like... I love what both of you are kind of calling us to, which is a tendency in our own minds to think like we're so much smarter than characters that lived in the Middle Ages. What really might be going on is like we're too dumb to think about the granular differences that might occur between different thoughts. This is something I'm always getting on my writing students about like they they love to just give me the gist of something like let me just give you the broadest possible strokes about an idea. and what I want is that sense of granularity, like what makes this one small idea different than this other small idea. And that's really hard to do. And it's it's hard for me to do too. Like I'm a the freaking instructor, right? But it's like we're not trained we're not trained to make these differences in the way that these characters who are trained in a very rigorous system of logic, going back to Aristotle, are. They're trained to make these subtle differences in ideas. And then, of course, like there's also problems associated with that. So William of Basketball is not a villain in this book. He's you know maybe sort of the, the the hero, the protagonist, but he's butting up against this system of thought that's very different than our own and very hard to grasp a hold of. Right? We listen to somebody like Jorge of Burgos sort of ranting about laughter and things like that, and we're like, what is going on? Why does this matter? But to them, it's a it's a very important. Matter of distinguishing one idea from another idea and making a clear classification of those different ideas and where they belong. It's a book of sorting in a lot of ways, kind of like a Mm -hmm. library, like you sort books into their different categories, the places they belong. In the same way, you have to sort ideas and figure out where they belong.
2: Yeah, the thing that both of you are touching on about William that is uh, important to me is definitely as like there's this prefiguring of like causistry in a way and. Older medieval senses of logic as more of the preeminent philosophical mode, right? In the 20th century logic as the way to figure out exactly how everything works and how you should do things in your personal life has fallen away, right? Where people are existentialists and phenomenologists and things more so in the 20th century and beyond. But then there's a real sense, and this comes from sherlock holmes who's always like deducing things though technically he's in inducing things that's that's an error on the on the part of conan doyle there that's when it's it's deduction it had to be this no it's it's almost always induction in those stories but um (laughs) nevertheless um parsing things carefully with respect to like the aristotelian syllogism which is the core of thought right echo who knows his Joyce's Aquinas is very like interested in this semiotic sense of the logic happening at this time, right? And that's why for William, uh, his friend William of Ockham, is also a very important figure, right? Again, a logician who is an abductive logician, neither inductive nor deductive, but reasoning on principles of beauty and unity, which are again very Thomistic principles inherent in all things. So he gives us all of that philosophy, but then also in a fun character to kind of lead us around. William has that line, which I I love in the beginning, beauty of the cosmos derives not only from unity and variety, but also from variety and unity. Just taking that as kind of a, a medieval principle about how the world is structured, I find to be very, very hopeful that all things can be understood but also variegated and kept within a certain sense of beauty and unity i don't know that that has always stayed with me from the book and if that's kind of something that william is out to save or keep in solving the mystery i think it's kind of important to keep in mind whether or not that idea remains valid for him and the, what he represents in the book, or if that's part of something that like is lost in all of these deaths that he's trying to mm-hmm. figure out. Is that an idea that's now been lost and we can't grasp anymore? And what does that mean?
0: I, I love that line, Carl, because it speaks to a couple of things in my mind. One, and maybe I'll take these one by one, but one is that that's sort of a question that the high middle ages is trying to answer is how do we have unity when we have variety and that it works on multiple levels. Obviously there's like the edge cases of these groups that are maybe heretical or out too far outside of the church's purview to really count anymore. Um, and, And maybe those need to be eliminated or just, you know, shrugged off or whatever, however you want to respond to them. But then even within the church's legitimate avenues, there's a sort of competition that takes place, and you, you get these references occasionally. The Benedictines and the Franciscans are kind of jostling with each other to see who's really doing this the right way. Because, of course, the Benedictines have these monasteries. They've been around for a very long time. They're very old order. They have this accumulated wealth, and they use it sometimes for bad things, but, but oftentimes for good things like these libraries or right? these stores of knowledge. And so is that the right way to do things, or is the Franciscan way, which is much more simple, you know, based on, of course, the rule of St. Francis of Assisi, and um, a sort of life of poverty and and instability. They don't take the same vows of stability to stay in the same place their whole lives, right? So so is that the way to do things? So there's a jostling between characters here, and then there's maybe some other options, too, like— the, the um, so-called secular priests, which doesn't mean the same thing we mean today, it means those who are out in the world versus the regular orders who are the ones who are ruled, ruled by rules, right? The, the rules of the patterns of life. So there's all these different options. And it's like, is this the same church in this abbey as it is like for the friars who are out in the world versus the secular clergy, right? And, of course, that's a very live question at a time where there end up being multiple competing people who are both claiming to be pope, right? Or mm-hmm. all these different elements of variety. How do you have that unity that then holds it together? And I I like your sense that this is a unity and a variety ultimately rooted in a sense of the beautiful as well as the true, maybe, right? There has to be that element of beauty that holds these things together. And then I think about that, um, sort of metaphorizing a little bit, I think about that in the book itself, right? That seems to be one of the principles. And maybe that's what sets it apart from some strains of postmodern writing where all you have is a sense of variety a sense of endless invention going off in a million different directions i think that echo wants to have a sense of unity to it as well even as he's creating all of these these various things he wants them to hold together somehow even if it's not in the strong way of like Eliot's middle march where everything's going to kind of come together in a big titanic statement of purpose it's a sense of unity that exists In some hard-to-detect ways, just like a a medieval manuscript might be, honestly, right? A sense of um, there is some unity there, even as, like, you know, got a picture of a cat, like, blowing wind out of its butt or something, right? Like, on on the the pages of a, a serious work of philosophy, like, how do those things hold together? Well, they do somehow. There is some sense of unity holding those things together.
2: Yeah. Should we talk about that debate? Because that's an important debate at this point in the book. I think it's in the second day, right? Where Jorge of Burgos says there's uh, one of the manuscript detailers has has been killed. I think it's the second death. And people are wondering why. And, and there, a debate kind of starts and... Jorge starts to make himself look pretty guilty in some sense or aligned with the person who might be guilty in the sense of saying well this is the wrong kind of thing to do you don't make these elaborate Mm. Karanamis bashian drawings of people with like a giant ear being sawn on somebody's buttocks next to a devil blowing fire right and this like high, weird, medieval stuff that I'm really glad is included in here, right? All people who really study the Middle Ages know there's a lot of this bizarre art and hard-to-decipher, strange, kind of surreal drawing, right, going on in a lot of these manuscripts. And for Jorge, this is all distraction. This is foolish. But uh, a lot of the monks who, you know, they spend their whole day copying manuscripts, dealing with manuscripts, there's some, there's even a theological purpose to like comic relief, right? In this sense, it does give some kind of real relief that is good and connects them back to the goodness of living and the joy of living and the beauty of living, right? So there's that kind of old versus new school kind of fight going on that I think is pretty interesting. And William
1: of Baskerville is someone who's open to new ways of thinking, importantly, open to getting what we would call scientific insights or insights in optics, uh, mathematics from uh, the Middle East, from the heathens, as he would say. Um, And the monastery itself is notably diverse, um, at least in a European sense, that there are people coming from Obviously, William's coming from pretty far away, the western edge, uh, western island, of the UK, uh, future UK. But one of the monks also complains that this is not an Italian monastery showing what Italians can do. This is a place where people are coming to learn from the edificium from the library and where the librarians themselves aren't Italian and are passing along information and about how to sort and seek and find things in the library that only they know esoterically, um, from one generation to the next. It's very, it's unified obviously across centuries, but it's, there's built in literal diversity, I guess. But also I think what we haven't talked about the other, the other, the, the, the narrator adds so of Melk and what his perspective on this is like how, because he's, he's following William of Baskerville. He's learning from William, but he doesn't, you know, have the firm grasp of inductive reasoning <laughs> that William has. Obviously he's a novice. And I think it, the, the opening of his manuscript after the preface is, was useful for me for thinking about what echo sees as unifying his novel a novel that's really diverse in its interests it begins with the john 1 1 reference in the beginning was the word and the word was with god coming from a semiotician. okay love that uh this was beginning with god and the duty of every faithful monk would be to repeat every day with chanting humility the one never-changing event whose incontrovertible truth can be asserted but we see now through a glass darkly and the truth before it is revealed to all face to face. We see in fragments, alas, how illegible in the error of the world. So we must spell out its faithful signals, even when they seem obscure to us. And as if amalgamated with a will, wholly bent on evil. I'd add so as someone who's, you know, looking back on this decades later as an old man, and I love that he's someone who's like, I, I'm trying to put together fragments of a world that I don't understand rather than just singing the truth every day unquestioningly. And he gets that from William because William is someone who says, yeah, there are great signs from the divine in the world around us that we can read, but there are also prosaic signs and those tell us things as well. And the whole book is about searching. And as, as Soren mentioned early on through th- through optics as well and seeing and how you see and perceive things, it's about putting together the information you can from what you have in front of you. Kind of like in the library of Babel, all these different theories emerge about what the nature of the library is, and they're based on observation
0: of what's around you. I love taking us to that opening, Friedrich, and especially that reference there. You get sort of a double biblical reference. you got John there, but then you also have this reference to the Apostle Paul saying, we see through a glass darkly, right? Which is, of course, supposed to be about, or, you know, the, the reflection of a mirror, like the, we see this world is only sort of obscuring what's really there. But then if you take that in the context of the book itself, William is the person who sees through a glass, but it's not dark. It's, it's about light, right? It's about mm-hmm. being able to see things more clearly. And so, yeah, I, I, I like that idea that we are, we're sort of playing around with ways in which we might be able to see more clearly or more distortedly. And and it's also, you know, important part of the reflection that we're getting here is from Adzo himself. And we get the occasional sense from old Adzo that as much as he loved and admired William of Baskerville, he's also not completely followed along with William's right. way. He did not become William's, you know, like successor in any meaningful sense. At the end of the day, he's Adzo of milk. He's of this monastery He's of this one place, and he is a little bit more maybe like old-fashioned than his master was even. And so there's like that, that nice tug between the more, as you sort of rightly pointed out, like sort of new ways of thought that William of Baskerville is developing and the tug of sort of the old or more traditional ways. You, you're absolutely right to bring us to the sense of variety that's going on within the Abbey itself. Are these monasteries going to be places of essentially of cosmopolitanism at least an intra-european cosmopolitanism um there's a there's a there's a monk from sweden right um there's these people coming from all over the place Adzo's from germany right you have all these different countries or nationalities or not that's not not even the right word right like like ethnicities coming together within the abbey and then you know the, the you have the italian monks who are like hey wait a minute like this is supposed to be an italian monastery what's going on here right how do we hold these things together and 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 you have that sort of an interesting insight into the way things are changing somewhat because obviously like italy is not a place right now it's not a a, a country it's not going to be a country for 600 more years right they take their time to get the, their stuff together a uh, germany's not a country right it's just like but there's some sense of un- incipient unity there that mm-hmm fosters a sense of pride in place that's in tension with really the idea of Christendom itself, which is a sort of pan-national cooperation between different elements of the church. And how do those things hold together, right? Even the central conflict that's supposed to be happening in the book is between the two, in some ways, the two most powerful figures of Christendom, the Pope and then the Holy Roman Emperor, who's not a national figure like a leader of a of a country is right. He's he's supposed to be at least a figure that unifies a bunch of different people groups together. And so there's there's these weird tensions running through the book about uh, maybe an emerging sense of nationalism that's happening, and maybe that's happening at the expense of the old order of um, unity that happens through, through through Christendom. So there's a lot of interesting things floating around in there. And then you add in the element, the complicated elements that you're bringing us to as well about these ideas like we're getting Aristotle who's a pagan and he's not even coming to us directly he's coming to us through the Arabs like what do we do with that like how do we use is it licit to use that knowledge and it is right but it's Mm -hmm. becomes a complicated question and and William of Baskerville especially is somebody who values the knowledge that's coming out of the medieval Islamic philosophers but other characters are not quite so sure if they can employ that knowledge or not so it's 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 a live question of like, can we arrive at true Christian statements about the world through the work of people who are clearly not Christians? Like, how do we balance those things, right? How do we come to solid conclusions when we have all these varieties of sources going on?
1: This is a, maybe stretching varieties a little bit, but since we're on the topic of Adso as well, there's a question in this is also varieties of religious experience. Shout out William James. Um, <laughs> another William. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah we're overrun with Williams in this book I wonder what you all think about this maybe, maybe you don't but when Adso sees the church door and the high, it's highly decorated with these images of the post-apocalyptic singing the praises of the Lord forever in heaven right of all the creatures and, and uh, ancients doing that and it's like this frightening image of frenzy in which uh Eventually, the song of praise transforms from sound into image. He's like seeing things crossing states of, you know, which sense perceives it in a sort of mystical vision, uh, which is quite apart from William of Baskerville's way of experiencing religion as something logical and observed, at least. Logical to a degree and observed. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts just about Adso as a character who's more. Enthusiastic would be the wrong and anachronistic word, but maybe enthralled to
2: feeling. Another thing that always um, comes up for me when we get like a, a longer speech by William of Baskerville is like here's like the forerunner of like Christian humanism, right? Mm. Like there's a very like Frederick Douglassy sense of like the rights of all individuals is kind of in his thinking, right? And I mean echo in. The 80s is, you know, obviously championing that kind of connection in some way. The world order of the 1980s still needs some more humanism, right? He's saying uh, we there isn't enough of it yet, and there needs to be more Williaminess. But I like how we, whose words are we reading? We're reading mm. the words of Echo's translation of Adso, supposedly, right? Who is the one who is invested in that but not fully that's not the highest or fullest sense of his worldview right some other transcendent element that isn't like just the god of Spinoza or something is in his mind and in how he has to interpret the world and I think it shows up more in the in the following days why that um, is such a like important aspect of his character but he's perhaps able therefore to be a little bit more all in or all invested in certain aspects of the mystery or the monastery, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's another level of irony of why we get him the slightly more doubtful older version giving us the full story. But it it strikes us that like perhaps William was never as like mystical or as intensely mm-hmm. devout as Adso is in this moment that Friedrichs brought us to, right?
0: Yeah. That's a really nice tension as well because both for historical reasons, this is a period of time when there is a lot of, I think it's it's not wrong to say religious enthusiasm. And, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, among many other things, was famous for, for experiencing stigmata, right, which is a pretty, like, intense version of religious enthusiasm. And that does sort of rub certain people the wrong way, right? And even maybe his follower, William of Baskerville, has mm-hmm. some of that in him, that sort of skepticism of that sort of religious experience. But the book is—and the book kind of plays around with that because, of course, at the end of day two, we get this experience that Adzo has where he is experiencing, like, sort of the torments of hell, but it's happening through this use of a hallucinogen. But that doesn't necessarily mean, I don't think, that that the book as a whole is, like, only critical of that religious enthusiastic experience or taking William's idea that, like, you can sort of explain it through these other elements. I think there's an element— uh, an element that remains mysterious about it. And those moments like you're bringing us to there, Friedrich, where you have a, a character experiencing some sort of religious insight in a way that's not just reducible to physical, you know, experiences are going on around him. I think that's a, a, maybe an important tension in the
2: book to note. I think that's how the varieties of religious experience ends, right? Somewhere, somewhere close to that. James's own sense of what, Defines religious experience for him,
1: Carl. I I like that you that you're that you said too that that stuff that element of Adzo's character. Something we'll talk about more, or it will have more bearing on the later readings of this, the later episodes that we 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 record, the later the days in this book. As will I think another interesting, maybe interesting to me, lack of diversity. If we're talking about the diversity at this Abbey, which is or at this uh, monastery, (laughs) it's obviously men only, and their sexuality and sexual interests in one another, or in women, or the idea of women play into a lot of their um, sort of ulterior motives and decisions that William is trying to pick up on and figure out toward the end of the reading for today, that's something that comes up, um, that Adelmo, the first monk to, to die, had a fair face that reminded many people of a beautiful woman as well as a young man, and so he was pursued by someone and I'm going to leave off the question of gender and sexuality. Cause I think that's going to come up more uh, as we read forward, but another interesting device maybe that uh, echo uses in this mystery. If we're talking about this in the mystery genre is thinking about those characters, sexual motives, they're all kind of locked up eventually in the confessional and they have this vow of charity that they can't reveal what's been confessed, obviously. And so as much dis- he's, as he's trying to get people to disclose things, to read the signs, there is this kind of openness as well that's being released in the confessional and then contained. And, and there are secrets known by priests here, and, but no one can reveal them. And that's an interesting, uh, unusual for the mystery genre uh, element, I think.
0: Yeah, it makes a great plot device for sure that there are there are things that have been revealed but cannot be revealed to anybody. But, you know, the person has been told to in the confessional, um, he cannot then in turn disclose that to other people, including to us, the reader. Right. So there's an there's an element of playfulness in the way that Echo is using that for sure. Mm. Well, I think that's a great place to to pause for now, because we've got a lot more to do um, when we get to, to today's uh three and four for next time. We'll pick up some of these threads. We'll talk more about unity, variety, um, and some of those other elements as we move forward. But uh, for now, we'll pause. Happy reading. If you're reading along with us, it's a really engaging book. You probably won't want to stop once you start, Um, but we'll come back. And next time we'll talk about days three and four, and then we'll have another episode a little bit later on days five, six, and seven as we conclude things. But uh, until then, uh, it's great to say it again my friends. We're going to let cat keyboard play us out.
2: Oh. I know who could figure it out. A detective. (laughs) That sounds like detective music. Egad! The hunts afoot! Show me the clues. Why, who are you? Sherlock Himlock, the world's greatest detective. My senses are keen. My mind is acute. Wherever I'm needed, I go. Whenever... What were we talking about? Uh, uh, My my, uh, lunchbox here. The lunchbox? Mm Mm-hmm. Aha. What about the lunchbox? Uh, uh, The sandwich. Chicken salad. Delicious. How do you know it's delicious? I mean, it uh, looks delicious. Chicken salad's my favorite. (laughs) Now, what was it you wanted to know? What happened to the other half of my chicken salad sandwich? Wait. Don't tell me, let me deduce it from the clues.